The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Thanks, brother. It is a good thing to see our little ones grow, um, and thanks for pulling an audible and filling in there, man. I appreciate that. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to be continuing our track this morning in uh, our study of Mark's gospel, um, and where we are this morning is uh, on the back half, I guess you could say, of probably uh, the second of the two more famous episodes in Mark's gospel that we typically find, Jesus feeding the 5,000. And that's what we saw last week. And then this second one that comes right on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is the miracle of Jesus walking on water. And so what we're going to do before we begin our study and just to see what Christ would have us to see from these verses, we're going to pause, we're going to pray as we ask for the Spirit's help to help us recognize that King Jesus is not only the compassionate shepherd, which is what we saw last week, but King Jesus is the Lord of glory, the great I Am. And so let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak, and then we'll turn our attention to these verses. Lord, you are the Lord of glory. 
and your Son, Jesus Christ, is the great I Am. We ask that you, Lord God, would come and turn our hearts and turn our minds to the things of Christ seen in these verses. I've got no doubt in my mind that right now there are just tens and hundreds of things firing in our heart and our soul and our mind vying for our attention as the enemy longs to pull our attention away from the things of Jesus Christ that are here in these verses. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would not only turn our hard hearts and make them soft to the things of Christ, but that you would sharpen our minds right now, Holy Spirit, to tune in our attention to the things of Christ that will soon be spoken from the text. Again, may it be like the two disciples walking along the road of Emmaus or with Jesus as Jesus unpacked the glories of the Savior from the Old Testament. Their response was, did not our hearts burn within us as he, Jesus, the Christ, explained the things of God to us? Lord God, help us right now. Come. Fill us with the good gift of your Holy Spirit so we can hear the things of Christ. It's in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. It can be very, very easy to see someone without truly seeing who they are. One of the books at Delta Church we like to use as we seek to mature disciples and especially as we seek to help followers of Jesus connect the reality that because you are a follower of Jesus, this makes you a witness for Jesus Christ. One of the books we like to use is a book called Honest Evangelism written by a man named Rico Tice. And it's in this book that Rico Tice rightly recognizes this very truth, that it is very easy to see someone without truly seeing who they are. Tice goes on to illustrate this truth in his book by giving an illustration of a personal story. And Tice says this, There was this time when I was invited to go and eat with a father and a son in a very exclusive club in London. Not a regular hangout for me. And so I found myself, Ty says, standing on the stairs of this restaurant waiting for my hosts to arrive. Opposite me, also waiting, was a man I vaguely recognized, but in the end I just generally thought nothing about it. And so, as English people do, we gave each other a sheepish nod, and then we waited awkwardly for five whole minutes in total silence. Then a man came from around the corner and then said to the man I was standing there with, Ah, William, there you are. We are in the back dining room. It was then that I realized the man I was standing with was Prince William. I had been with him for five whole minutes, and we had nothing better to do than talk to each other these whole five minutes, but I had barely even noticed who he was. I had lost the opportunity for a once-in-a-lifetime conversation. See, all I had seen was a tall young man with thinning blonde hair, but what I had not seen was that he was my future king. 
You see, the fact is this, is that it's all too common for you and I to miss those who are around us. Whether it's because you're too busy or whether it's just you're not paying attention or maybe someone has just become too familiar to us and so they just sort of start to fade into the background of our busy days. Whatever it is, we have all been in the place where we have seen someone without truly seeing who they are. And so for Rico Tice, because he failed to recognize Prince William, he just missed out on a once-in-a-lifetime conversation to talk with his future king. But when it comes to our interactions with King Jesus, much more is at stake if we fail to recognize who he is. You see, the reality is this. It is possible for any one of us to surround ourselves with all sorts of Jesus stuff and yet fail to recognize Jesus for who he truly is. Because this is true, it explains why Mark continues to hound us with the question, who is Jesus? Again, we've said this almost every single Sunday, that when you break down Mark's gospel, it's 16 chapters. It can literally divide in half, where the first eight chapters are this building crescendo of Mark continually hounding us with, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You've got to wrestle with this question. You've got to see he's not just some normal carpenter. He's not just some Palestinian man. You've got to see that he is the son of God. He is the king. He is the one with authority. He is the one with power. He has power over Satan, over sin, over death, healing disease, casting out demons, teaching with authority. He is the Christ, the king. Last week we saw that he's the compassionate shepherd. We saw that he is the bread of life himself. And so as Mark continues working up to the great confession of the Apostle Peter in Mark chapter 8, there's no other time in the Mark's gospel leading up in these first eight chapters where the actual confession that Jesus is the Christ, it first shows up, that word Christ, in Mark chapter 8. And so what Mark is doing is there's this drama of building suspension leading up to that crescendo. And here we are getting near the top as yet again Mark rolls out for us. Listen, you have got to wrestle with this question, who is Jesus? Who is he? Like, you just don't bump into Jesus and walk away. You don't just shrug your shoulders and go, well, I guess he's just maybe doing some cool stuff. Like, Jesus has not left that option for us. He's doing things and saying things that are unique and set him apart as totally different from any other person that's ever walked or will ever walk here on this earth. Who is Jesus? That is the question that Mark is rolling out to us. And like a bulldog, Mark has bit into this question and he is not going to let it go. He wants you to seriously consider the claims of Christ and wrestle with the question of who is Jesus. He's just dead set on us wrestling with the identity of this man and the reason why he's dead set on us wrestling with the identity of this man is because Mark knows all too well how easy it can be to see Jesus without truly seeing Jesus. How easy it is to go to community group 
but not really see Jesus. Read your Bible, not really see Jesus. Pray, not see Jesus. Give money to the church, not see Jesus. Serve in the church, not see Jesus. Have Christian family, not see Jesus. Christian friends, not see Jesus. Sing Christian songs and not see Jesus. It's easy to see him, but not truly see him. And as Mark is working towards that place in chapter 8, the great crescendo of Mark's gospel, where the Apostle Peter says, you are the Christ. I see you for who you are. Here we are yet again with Mark saying, brothers and sisters, before we get to that place, man, I'm just going to roll out another piece of evidence that's going to force you to either just go, this is true, he is the Christ, or you're just going to look at it and shrug your shoulders and stifle a yawn and roll on your way. And because Mark, again, knows how easy it can be to see Jesus without truly seeing Jesus, this possibility is just almost like it's weighing on Mark's heart. And so what he says is, let me turn you to a time when the disciples saw Jesus, but they really didn't see Jesus. And that's what we get when we turn our attention, starting off here in verse 45. You see, the first thing that we notice as we look at our verses is this. The disciples just simply fail to understand who Jesus is. In this whole walking on water episode that Mark records for us. You look in verse 45, Mark begins writing. Immediately, Jesus. They immediately comes right on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000. So the idea is that, remember, the disciples hit shore early in the morning. The crowd they tried to leave behind is now the crowd that is there waiting for them on the shore. Jesus says, boys, the vacation time is put on hold. He starts ministering to the people because Jesus has compassion as the shepherd for these sheep who are lost, harassed, and helpless. He sees their spiritual needs, begins to teach them. He meets their physical needs by breaking the fish and loaves. The day is getting late. And now what happens is this episode. It's all in the same day. And so right on the tail end of Jesus feeding the 5,000, Mark tells us that Jesus looks at his disciples and made his disciples get into the boat so that they could go before him back to the other side, to Bethsaida. And while he dismissed the crowd, he then took leave of them and he goes up onto the mountain to pray. So again, if you remember from last week, all of this episode here of Jesus walking on water, coming to the disciples as they're struggling to make headway because of the windstorm against them, these sorts of things, this is like on the very tail end of a very long and from the disciples' perspective, somewhat disappointing kind of day. And so what happens is you get a little bit more insight into the immediacy of what's going on in verse 45. Like, why is there just like this immediacy is sort of the question. Like, why does Jesus feed the 5,000, look at the 12, and be like, boys, you need to get out of here. Hop back in the boat and go to the other side. And I think it's John chapter 6 where you get this episode of Jesus feeding the 5,000 that gives us a little bit of an insight that's going on here because in John chapter 6, specifically verse 15, John tells us that when Jesus got done feeding the 5,000, the crowd was sort of whooped up into this great fervor where they began to say, I think this guy is the prophet, the one we've been waiting for. And it says the fervor of the crowd was such that they decided to go and grab Jesus and they wanted to force him to be their king in that moment. 
But for the crowd, they wanted a King Jesus that was void of the cross. And King Jesus knows this, that the only way that I can rightly rule and reign as the king of the hearts and the thrones of men's lives is if I go through the cross. And so he looks at the disciples like, boys, we've got to shut this down. This is not what my kingship is all about. So he gets them into the boat. He sends them off to the other side and notice that he goes up to the mountain to pray. It's just an interesting little tidbit, and I love Mark for letting us know this because what it just tells us is this, is you've got the incarnate Son of God who needs time with the Father. And so he carves out time, and if it's important for him, how much more important should it be for us to find set-aside time to pray to the Father? But notice that by the time Jesus finishes praying, Mark tells us that, verse 47 evening had come. The boat with the disciples is out on the sea. Well, Jesus was alone on the land. And what Jesus saw, presumably from the vantage point of being up on the mountain, is he could cast his eye out to the horizon and see that the disciples were making headway painfully. The wind was against them. If you've ever been in a boat, a canoe, or anything, trying to paddle with a stiff breeze against you. I mean, it's, it's basically like what I heard one pastor say this past week. It's basically like an exercise in futility. I mean, you're just pouring out energy, pouring out energy, rowing, 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 and like you're just going nowhere. It's frustrating. It's infuriating. Man, it just drives you nuts because here you are expending all this energy. You're going nowhere. Maybe the disciples are thinking, man, like he, the only reason why we're in this predicament is because he commanded that we get into this place and he's not even around. There's something very familiar to this episode that strikes about Mark chapter 4 where they were in the, in the boat, the storm on the sea. Maybe they're thinking like at least Jesus had the common decency to be with us in this predicament. But here we are now back in the same predicament. He's like he's not even around anywhere. So there's almost like this dual idea of like maybe just being infuriated at the wind and the elements and maybe like there's this little bit of emotional heart struggle going on because like where's Jesus? He's just not even around. Mark tells us all this was shaking out during the fourth watch of the night. The way Jews would count time back then, that means it's somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. So evening time is when they set out. And here they have been rowing all night long, all night long, all night long. Now it's about 3 a.m. And they're still out on the water, not getting where they want to go. And Mark tells us that it's about this time that Jesus does what no one had done before or had done since. He comes to them walking on the sea. He sees what they are going through as they struggle against the wind, and so he decides to go out there and meet them. Now notice that when you read verse 48, all those details make sense. But if you cast your gaze down to the end of verse 48, there's this one little curious phrase that shows up where you're reading verse 48, he sees they're making headway painfully, the wind was against them, it's the fourth watch of the night, so he decides to go to them, he sets off toward them walking on the sea, curious little phrase, but he meant to pass them by. And you read that, and that just sort of strikes you as a, a little odd. It just sits on you a little bit weird, and it like sort of causes you to like just start maybe scratching your chin and asking, like, so what was the point of that? 
I mean, at least makes you start asking, like, why would Jesus take the time to notice the disciples' trouble, go and perform a miracle of walking on the water so he can go and help them meet their need, only to get there and be like, eh, I think I'm just going to pass them by. Like, why would Jesus do that? Like, you read that little phrase, and it seems to make no sense. But this curious little phrase gets an explanation when you realize that Mark is once again painting the background of this miracle with brushstrokes from the Old Testament. So you remember last week, Jesus feeding the 5,000. I mean, it was the confluence of the Old Testament. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, or shall not want. This idea of Ezekiel 34, Israel needed a good shepherd to actually come and shepherd. This idea of bread from heaven, Exodus chapter 16. All these things were just rushing together, and they collided in the Lord of glory, performing a miracle which proved he is the good shepherd who is the bread of life. Mark rolls right out of that miracle into this miracle. And he's doing the exact same thing. He's going to reach back into the Old Testament and say, like, listen, if you're just up on your Old Testament stuff, what you need to know is that the arms of the Old Testament are once again reaching forward and pointing to Jesus Christ right here in this moment. And specifically, the brushstrokes that Mark is using from the Old Testament revolve around something called a theophany. Fancy word, theophany. But It's this idea of a theophany that describes those moments in the Old Testament where the Lord God just simply manifests himself to his people. So if you hear the word theophany, it's just simply describing those moments in the Old Testament where God, who is spirit, physically manifests himself in some way as he interacts with the people of God. It comes from this dual idea. It's a compound word, theophany. It's the front half, theos, meaning God. The back half, phano, meaning display. And so if you have a theos, phano, or a theophany, it's just simply God displaying himself in a very visible way for the people of God to be able to see and interact with him. And so when you go back into the Old Testament... Into Exodus chapter 33, what you find is one of the most famous theophanies there is to be found in the Old Testament as Moses, the man of God, interacts with the Lord God. And specifically in Exodus 33, there is this interaction between Moses and the Lord God where God is calling Moses to go and lead his people. And there's this moment where Moses says, God, I need you to go with me. If your presence doesn't go with me, then this whole shooting match is just all for naught. And God says, listen, you need to know this. I will go with you. My presence will go with you. You will succeed because I am the one who's doing this work. And there's this overwhelming sense from Moses where he's like, yeah, this is exactly what I was needing and it stirs him up to go I need you right now to show me your glory show me your glory the presence of God is going with the people of God show me your glory Lord God but Moses gets this response to that request of show me your glory the Lord God says to Moses listen Moses you can't see my face Man shall not see me and live. And so the Lord said, 
Behold, Moses, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory, here's the phrase, passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so Moses has this experience in this theophany where he says, I really badly want to see your glory. And God says, listen, man, if you saw my glory, pure, unadulterated glory, it would nuke you. But what I'll let you do is I'm going to set you in the cleft of the rock, and then as my glory passes you by, what you will come to know is who I am. And so what we have is in this theophany of Exodus 33, is that as the Lord God passed by Moses at Mount Sinai, ultimately revealing His glory to Moses, so now Jesus, who is the Son of God, means to pass by the disciples right now so that they can see His glory and believe. That's what's going on here. And so what Jesus does is He does what only God can do. Only God can walk on water. As the creator of heaven and earth, creation bows and submits to his will. Job chapter 9 verse 8 tells us that he, God alone, stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. And so now here is Jesus Christ, the man from Galilee, walking on the water, treading the waves, seeking to pass by, displaying to the disciples what you're witnessing right now is not just some illusion. What you're witnessing right now, in a sense, is a theophany, the visible manifestation of God himself right there before your very eyes. And so his intention in walking on the sea and meaning to pass them by is so that he can show the disciples beyond question that he, Jesus from Nazareth, is the Son of God in the flesh. But unfortunately, the disciples see without truly seeing. Notice how they react. They see Jesus walking on the water, verse 49, and they think it's a ghost. Causes them to cry out in terror. You don't want to be too hard on the disciples. You probably would have done the same if you're like, no, man, if I was in the boat, man, I would have been on the, like the bow of the boat going, man, I know it's Jesus coming after us, isn't he? It's Jesus. No, you wouldn't, man. You'd be freaking out and crying in the back of the boat with the disciples. It's 3 a.m., you've been rowing all night, you're physically tired, all of a sudden something just comes drifting across the water, man, you're in freak-out mode. You're going to be terrorized just like they are. Mark tells us that Jesus immediately speaks to them. Winds blowing, waves rocking, disciples freaking out. Jesus is like, boys, we need to calm down here. And notice that Jesus issues the double command there. End of verse 50. Take heart, do not be afraid. And then he anchors these commands on the truth, it is I. Climbs in the boat, wind stops. The disciples, I'm sure, 
are blown away. Now notice that when Mark records the words of Jesus in this whole episode, it's right there in verse 50. The only thing we get from Christ is the double command, take heart, do not be afraid, and then he anchors it all on this one truth, this one fact, it is I. And when Mark records the words of Jesus saying, it is I, what he's doing is he's once again reaching back into the Old Testament and pulling an Old Testament theophany, and he's dragging it forward, and he's just letting us know that Jesus is up to something right here. Because not only do you get a theophany experience in Exodus 33, where Moses is talking with the Lord God, but when you go into Exodus chapter 3, you get another theophany where Moses has an interaction with the Lord God in the burning bush. And do you remember the interaction there? God is saying, Moses, go and rescue my people. And Moses says, listen, if I'm going to go and do this thing, people are going to ask me, bro, who, like, who are you representing? And Moses looks at the Lord God and says, I need you, Lord God, to give me a name because the people are going to ask me for a name and I need something to tell them. And, Moses, and God says to Moses, listen, when you go to the people and they ask you, Moses, what is the name of the God who sent you to me? God says, you need to tell them my name is I am. I am who I am. That is my name. And so you have that as the background because that phrase, I am, when you jump into the New Testament, it's translated with the words, ego, a me. And when you go into John's gospel, that I am statements of Jesus Christ show up all over the place. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. And when you read John's gospel, you're meant to read those I am statements and recognize Jesus is linking himself back to Exodus chapter 3 and letting people know when you're looking at me, you're interacting with the Lord God. Mark's gospel has one I am statement, and it's right here in front of us. When Jesus says, take heart, do not be afraid, I am is right here with you. And so what happens is as Jesus is talking to the twelve, he gives them the command, calm down, take heart, do not be afraid. The reason why they can take heart and not be afraid is because the great I am is manifested right before their very eyes. See, in other words, when Jesus says, I am, is here with you, Jesus shows the disciples that he not only walks where only God can walk, but Jesus also bears God's name. The I am has passed by in the flesh, and they need to not miss this truth. But they miss it still. They see Jesus, and in this instance, they hear Jesus without seeing Jesus and truly hearing Jesus. And notice what the end result is there at the end of verse 51. He gets in the boat with them, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Again, the idea in the original is this, is that they were so terrified by what they had just experienced, they were exceedingly abundantly beside themselves. That's like the phrase that's going on there. They're so freaked out, it's almost like they're having like an outside-of-themselves kind of an experience. 
And Mark tells us they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand. Now, my guess is this, is that as you continue reading into verse 52, when Mark says they were utterly astounded because they did not understand that what Mark writes next as the reason for why they were utterly astounded is so opposite of what you would expect him to write. So you'd expect him to say, hey, man, the disciples are rightly sort of freaked out because, man, they were just really confused. Like, how does Jesus climb into a boat and just make the wind stop? That's why they were freaked out. It doesn't say that. Or maybe you'd expect Mark to say the reason why they were completely amazed was because they had no clue how Jesus came walking to them on water. Mark doesn't say that. Maybe you'd expect him to say, well, maybe... Uh, They were freaked out because they just couldn't understand why they had struggled for so long and why the Lord took so long to get to them. After all, he told us to go in the evening. It's now 3 a.m. Like, couldn't he have come, like, you know, send us off at 6 and showed up at 6.30? I mean, that would have been really decent of him to make us not struggle so long. I I can't, I'm confused on, on why he would do that. I don't understand. But Mark says that's not the reason either. Look what it says. It's right there in verse 52. Mark says the reason why they were so utterly astounded was because they didn't understand about the loaves. They're in a boat freaking out on the water because they failed to understand how Jesus did the thing with the bread back on land. And so it causes us to at least pause and ask the question, well, what on earth did they not understand about the loaves that is leading them to freak out right now in the boat? And the answer comes down to this, and it's really the essence of all these verses. The answer is that the disciples had failed to see who Jesus really was as the compassionate shepherd. They saw Jesus, but they didn't see Jesus. You see, earlier in the day, Jesus had shown himself to be the shepherd who meets the needs of his people. But then they find themselves in a predicament where the only way their need is going to be met is in Jesus. But because they failed to see it back on land, they freak out in terror instead of trust on the boat. The compassionate shepherd isn't just the compassionate shepherd on land. The compassionate shepherd is the compassionate shepherd no matter where your needs or your troubles lie. Therefore, they should have known that he would not abandon them. Because he had proved himself capable to meet the needs of the people earlier when the whole fish and loaves episode, then they should have come to the place, here we are now, in a very similar place of need. And if he was capable of then, he's more than capable now. But the reason why they failed to understand about the loaves, thus failing to understand while walking on the sea, verse 52, it's because their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. And because their hearts were hardened, instead of trusting, they were terrified. Mark keeps on rolling and he shows us that in direct contrast to the disciples, the crowd recognizes who Jesus is and they seek right after him. Mark tells us, verse 53, when they'd crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and more to the shore. And when they, the disciples and Jesus, got out of the boat, notice what happens. The people immediately recognized him ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. See, Jesus is seen by the people as the compassionate shepherd that he truly is. They see Jesus and they see Jesus. Hey, he's just parked on our shores and we know what he's about. He's the compassionate shepherd who cares for the needs of the sheep. 
He is the one who has a care for our needs. And more than that, he is the one who can actually do something about our needs. Now, these people may not know much, and they, but they know this at least, that if they can just get near to Jesus, their needs will be met in him. Verse 56, so wherever he came, villages, cities, countryside, didn't matter. The people came to him. They laid their sick in the marketplaces. They implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. Mark tells us that as many as touched it were made well. Now, here's the kicker in all of this. When you just step back and begin to think about this. Whenever we read these verses, no matter how much we might hate it, we've got to make this confession. We're the disciples in this, in this episode. We're that motley band of people who have the tendency to see Jesus but not see Jesus. See, just as the disciples failed to understand who Jesus was in the compassionate provision of the fish and loaves, you and I so often fail to understand who Jesus is as he daily provides compassionately for our cares and our needs. Just as the disciples lost sight of Jesus, the great I Am, who was present with them in their trouble, you and I, we just do the exact same thing so often. That thing comes its way seeking to undo you, and what do you do in that moment? What you don't do is stand on the bow of the ship, as it were, and go, man, I see Jesus coming. I know it's him. We're on the back of the boat, freaking out, terrified, crying, ah, where's he at? This can't be him. That's how we're prone to react in those moments. Like the disciples, we have the tendency to see Jesus without truly seeing Jesus. And it's because our hearts can grow hard concerning our compassionate shepherd. But here's what I love about this whole episode. Is that when the disciples in this moment see Jesus but don't really see Jesus, Jesus comes to them and says, you big fools, I want you to get your act together. Straighten up next time. Or I'm not going to do this anymore. He doesn't do that, does he? What I love about this whole episode is that the hard-heartedness of the twelve does not put them beyond the compassionate care of the shepherd. And what that should mean is really good news for you. Because if you and I are more like the disciples, the hard-hearted disciples that have the tendency to see Jesus but not really see Jesus more than we'd care to admit, what we need to know is how is the compassionate shepherd going to react to us if we find ourselves in the same boat, figuratively speaking, as these disciples. And the good news is that if you find that yourself that hard attitude of, man, I'm just sort of prone to doubt and prone to not believe, man. I just, I have the tendency to see Jesus but not see Jesus and just sort of drift in and out and do just all kinds of Jesus things, but I fail to see that at the center of it all, at the essence of it all, is Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who is the great I am. I so often fail to see that. What hope do I have if I find myself in that place? The hope is this. You can be met with the compassionate grace of the great I am. Because that's what the disciples receive. It's the compassionate grace of the great I am. And so for all their stumbling and their bumbling as the disciples are wrestling with the question, who is Jesus? Notice that they receive no rebuke. 
Listen, Jesus knows they still got a lot to learn as they continue to grow in their understanding of his identity. And so in their failure, they are met with the matchless grace of the great I am. And so for those of us who've turned from our sin and are trusting in Christ alone as our only hope of salvation, we can be found to be in the same place. The same can be said for us. So whether you find yourself in the relative blessing of a fish and loaves season of life, or if you find yourself making headway painfully because of some trial, some hardship that's going on in your world, or maybe you're just battling a hard heart like the disciples that's just prone to doubt the compassionate care of God right now in this moment. What you need to do is hear the Savior say, take heart, do not be afraid, understand, I am. And that's the good news promise of the compassionate shepherd who is the Lord of glory, the great I am. Let's pray. Christ, you are the Lord of glory. You're the Lord of glory. You are the great I am manifested in the flesh. You lived. You died so that we might move from spiritual death to spiritual life. 